0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan, and I'm here at the Thanksgiving, virtual Thanksgiving table with my co-host and Hive family member, Emily Jane Fox. Hi.
1: Hello. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: Happy Thanksgiving to you.
1: Boy, do we have a lot to be grateful for this year.
0: I think so. I mean, we're in the news business, so the list of complaints and negative things that we could say about the world are basically, you know, we're doing that that's just uh, a given uh, but let's put all that aside since as you and i and probably the people listening here um we're for uh a brief time going to block out the world and just get with our loved ones and try to remember some like essential uh human uh our own humanity uh inside the maelstrom
1: yeah i i, I mean it doesn't seem like Thanksgiving, particularly in recent years, is a time to escape what's happening in the world because inevitably everything comes up around the Thanksgiving table, right? But
0: Well, that's true, But although I, it shouldn't, you know.
1: I, oh my God, I know. But I would say that this year is an interesting kind of in-between Thanksgiving. Last year, we were all kind of solo and scattered and uh, no one was really doing anything with their family unless they were in a pod with them or they lived very close or whatever or you're doing it outside uh this year i think people are able to gather in a way i'm still going to be separated from my family because we're far away and uh the travel is still not the easiest thing particularly when you have a little baby but um you know we're going to a friend's house and you can do those kinds of things now so that's it's not a full return to normalcy for most people this Thanksgiving, but hopefully there's a step in the right direction for everyone and, and everyone gets to do something that feels a little bit closer to the holiday than last year.
0: Well, they say, uh, you know, don't talk about politics around your family. I mean, it depends on your family, right? Mm. If you have political divisions, there's always you shouldn't one. bring them up. There's always one. There's always somebody. I. I we, I'm not going to name names, but even in my uh, in-laws' ostensibly liberal family, there are there are closet conservatives hiding there. They don't they don't mention anything, but always and one. That's smart of them.
1: Well, at least yeah. they're quiet. If they don't mention it,
0: they they generally stay quiet. I mean, uh, not talking about things is a survival strategy for Thanksgiving, but there are going to be some things that we can all talk about uh, that are you know, relevant and current. And and one of the things that uh, you and I have discussed uh, uh, recently is that uh, how bizarre the economy is, mm. right? Everybody kind of wants to know, like, hey, you know, if I have any stocks or a portfolio of any kind, it's totally going through the roof and because of the stock market. And then on, on the other hand, you've got the prices of everything is going completely insane. And then on yet the third hand, we're, this is a three-handed person. Mm. Um, on the third hand, everybody's spending like drunken sailors. Like everybody's going into debt. And it's like all these bizarre meters are, or uh, are economic meters are, are going. And everybody's kind of wondering where all this is going.
1: You know, Joe, when I first graduated journalism school, my, I started a job, I think, four or five days later. And I had a job at, at CNN Money, which is the business side of CNN. I had no business doing that, but I was thrust into it as you are as a young reporter. I was 23 years old. And the first kind of real thing that I was covering were were these economic reports that come out. Every week there are a handful of them and some of them matter more than others, but I had to cover them and they happen at eight o'clock in the morning. Everyone sort of rushes to judgment and you have to get three analysts on the phone because the stock market reacts once it opens, right? So you have to be able to understand the report and put it into context and then explain why that would make the market move or not move. And it's a kind of terrible reporting job, right? It's like cut and dry. It's sort of useless. It's, a, it's really like not a sexy job. But I will say I'm kind of nostalgic for that job right now because we are in such an an interesting economic moment that I wish my job were to look at all of these reports and call really smart people and say, what the heck is going on right now? Because it is so mind blowing to me. And by, I would say, vastly most measures, we are in an extremely strong economy. Wages are really strong. Unemployment is low. Uh, spending is crazy through the roof, um, consumer confidence I think is really high. The ability to, to get a new higher paying job is really, is, is on the table. And yet people feel completely unconfident when it comes to the state of the economy. When you look at the surveys about how people think the state of the economy is, people think that they're in a, in a terrible, terrible situation. I think a lot of that is because if you go and fill up your gas pump, you're paying $100 or you're going to the store to buy butter and there's no butter, right? Like there's yeah. there's a problem when you can't get the goods that you want to get because the supply chain is all messed up because people don't want to take the the jobs in trucking that they, they used to take or work in the supermarket to stock the shelves or you go into a restaurant and you're suddenly waiting half an hour to place an order because there's no cooks or no servers to bring it to you. It's a really interesting moment where the fundamentals are strong, but the feelings around the fundamentals are incredibly weak.
0: I wonder if that, I mean, the obvious answer here is like the the lingering pandemic, right? So everybody was prepared to come out of the cave over the summer and have the big party. And then where a party was cut short, and nobody's really recovered from it getting cut short, like the unexpected happened. And yeah. it's like, is the unexpected going to happen again? Are we going to have like a third, you know, Delta II, uh, Wrath of Khan kind of thing? Like, what what's going to happen? So I think when that, maybe that'll ebb in the spring, who knows, but it's true. There's like a disconnect there. And and I think a lot of that uncertainty and those feelings are um, being overlaid onto the political um you know, paradigm that we exist in.
1: And by the way, they should be. Like, I literally think this comes up in every conversation that I'm having that's, like, beyond my baby and, you know, what are we having for dinner tonight? But everyone who I'm talking to, this in some ways it comes back to this because either people are complaining about, like, the service industry right now, which is a crazy thing to do because, you know, it's an industry that suffered so much and if service is not back to a level where it was, it's because... It went through a very traumatic time, but it's it's not back to where it was, um, but but it's it's coming up in, in, in a number of different ways, and I think this is the one issue that hits people in a hyper local way, and this is the thing that people can connect to most. I I know people who are saying the Democrats are going to lose in 22 because. They're not progressive enough or they're too progressive and they haven't made any inroads in the middle and the Democrats have lost the culture war and the Republicans are ramping up their messaging and they're always so much better at their messaging. And I think that all of that is true. But that is not why people are going to vote or not vote in the midterm election or show up or not show up in the midterm election. That's not what is going to drive people. I think if people can't afford to fill up their gas tank, if daycares are still closing for 10 days at a time because COVID still exists in this world, and they can't take their job because they can't rely on their kid having adequate childcare, if they feel whether or not that that's real, but if the perception is that the economy is weak, Democrats are going to lose gigantically in the midterms, and they should. Like, they need to figure out how to message their way out of a good economy, which is a crazy thing, but they need to make people feel like the economy is much stronger than it is, or else it is going to be a bloodbath next November. That's my personal feeling. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair.
0: I agree with you on that. There have been a couple of columns I've read recently, one of them in The New York Times this week, contrary points of view about the Democrats' prospects, saying, well, you know, for instance, somebody this week saying, um, you know, this is what it looked like for Ronald Reagan in 1981. Uh, You know, it's a natural cycle of things that the bloom is off the Biden rose right now. But, you know, a year from now is a long time. And we, we know from just podcasting from week to week how quickly things pivot and the temperature changes, and suddenly it's a whole new story, right? Um, and we don't know how many times that's going to happen between now and November of next year. And I do think, uh, you know, depending on whether this anxiety, this lingering anxiety we're talking about ebbs, I also think that if, you know, Biden, he got the infrastructure bill passed, if he can get the social bill passed too – You know, there's going to be a lot on the plate. There's going to be a lot of sales points that uh, Democrats will have. I mean, right now, I just read that, uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke is—he's running for governor, we know, in Texas. Um, But he's not particularly interested in having Joe Biden come and campaign for him right now, which everybody understands, right? But so uh, in my uh, usual uh, way, I'm going to be a little bit optimistic here. I think things will—that the— atmosphere in the country is going to change. And I don't, you know, Biden, I think, I was just thinking about this yesterday. For a long time, you and I talked about how smart it was for him to keep his head down and not say anything during the Trump times, because Trump did all the talking and he basically like shot himself in the foot with the pandemic and Biden kept calm and cool and didn't say too much. And it was a great strategy, the rope-a-dope strategy, right? Mm -hmm. He just hung back I do think now is the time for Joe Biden to come forward and to own his successes and to have a clear vision and talk to the people. I think it's time for him to talk to the country again. I'm sure maybe he's waiting for the State of the Union. I don't know. But I think it's about time that this White House and the Democrats have a a banner of some kind that says, this is where we're going, country, this is what we're doing, and this is, you know, you may feel this way, but this is what the economy actually looks like, and, and here's the problems that we have and how we're going to fix them, you know, basically get back to basics as p- politicians and show, and, you know, tell people what is going on. Um, that could make a huge difference.
1: I, I completely agree, because I, I think that their perception has become reality, and that perceived reality is not right. It's, it's actually not real. And so you need to guide people back into the real because the real is actually pretty impressive, what has happened. There's so much more that needs to happen. Uh, there's so much more that will happen and will unfold. And maybe he is waiting until things unfold to, to come out and say, "Here is here are the three major things that I have accomplished. Here are how those three major things are going to impact you positively. And those are the things I promised you. I deliver it and I still have much more to go. Like maybe that's what he's waiting for. But if you wait too much longer, the narrative is going to be set in. I think we live in a time where everything is so messaged and so entrenched. Like just think about vaccine hesitancy, right? It's completely not rooted in anything real. And uh, we now, people have been vaccinated, doctors and, and first responders have been vaccinated for a year or almost a year, um, no one to my knowledge has grown a second head or a third arm or or whatever it is, and so uh, all the things that people were worried about getting a vaccine we kind of know by now, and so the message is is so entrenched by now that there's no changing it right so i think if if Joe Biden waits too much longer you you run the risk of. The message about the economy just being completely entrenched and nothing can change it, even though you will have uh, measures that will be able to prove it. It's a it's a really tricky time, and and obviously I think historically Republicans have have bested Democrats when it comes to messaging, um, and I think that that is what we are seeing right now. So here's well, hoping. Well, they're
0: you know they they go to the culture war buttons, yes. right? And the pandemic gave them one the vaccine thing gave them a culture war button, and they've been pressing it, boom, 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 boom. And then you've got Tucker Carlson coming out, trying to reorient the right to think that January 6th is like a big um, plot against Trump, right? (laughs) Which is mind boggling in the extreme. But these are pretty weak culture war buttons. And I also think that by the time you get to next year, if the pandemic has ebbed and it's just a flu shot now, right? and the masks are off for the kids, which I think it will be, a, that's a big thing, How if do. that happens, um, then they lose, right, a whole kind of uh, line of fire that they are, have currently are using. And, and I think that their brittleness of the of the right is, is higher than people think. You know, I think people saw this Virginia thing and they got spooked, and rightfully so, you know, and, and I think the the risk is that there are more candidates who don't align with Trump like that, uh, like the Republican governor who won there. But so anyway, here's here's the beauty of all of this is we just gave you, dear listener, a lot of great talking points for your Thanksgiving dinner. You're gonna sound really smart. You're gonna listen to what Emily Jane Fox just said, and you're gonna uh, pretend it's your own idea. So you just take that and and uh, run with it. Now, now we need to give, uh, you also some advice for how to uh, survive your in-laws, how to deal with uh, being stuck maybe in the same uh, zone as people you only see once or twice a year uh, for you know, at least a day, right? But probably longer, because people travel and they want to hang for a little bit, and then it's like day three, and you're like, oh my god.
1: Nothing good happens on day
0: that? three. <laughs> I have told you this, no.
1: Joe. I
0: yes.
1: I happen to love my in-laws, so this is not a problem yeah. for me. But I will tell mm-hmm. you that nothing good happens on day three of any group situation. No. 48 hours is a great amount of time to spend with people. Yes. 72, longer than 72, yeah.
0: Yeah. things can get the dicey. The 49th hour, don't, don't even do it.
1: I promise you on minute one of the 49th hour, shit will hit the fan. Something will go wrong. But if you are in the midst of that 49th hour or beyond listening to this and you need an escape, Joe, you have a movie suggestion. Can you talk to me a little bit about I have
0: a movie suggestion? I, th- well, this is what people. I think I know this is in my world. This is what people are talking about. Peter Jackson has this Beatles three part Beatles documentary coming out. And it premieres on Thanksgiving, mm. which what a beautiful gift just gorgeous. from the Beatles and from Peter Jackson, who's like, here, if you don't want to talk about Joe Biden and the economy, we've got the most perfect thing for you. And episode one is like, it, I think they're like two hours each, right? The whole Ugh. thing's like seven hours long. So you're just going to be able to wallow in your like Beatles love, which I have a lot of people know. Um, and having seen... Some of it, and I wrote about it for Vanity Fair. It's extraordinary. It's um, so fun, you know, to be able to hang out with the Beatles for that long, and the the young, beautiful Beatles making the, one of the great records of all time, "Let It Be." And so that's what this documentary is going to be. I'm sure people have read about it and have seen it in their, you know, in the ads. But go check out the trailers if you haven't, because it's really it will get you very excited. And I know that. Already I've got like people coming to me and they're like, hey, can we have a screening at your house? Because you have a nice TV. So great. Yeah, we can do that. So I would love to watch this
1: movie with you because I feel like it would give me such a deeper look into the Beatles. You would be the perfect person to watch this with. I don't know. I I think it's very smart programming to come out with this Thanksgiving weekend because it's such a universal crowd pleaser. I don't know that I would watch this alone but if I were with you, Joe, if we were lucky enough to be in the same place, I would race to turn it on because I would want to hear your thoughts about it. Oh, my God.
0: I don't know if you would. I mean, I would bore you to death. Ugh. Well, I will I will say this. I mean, um, I was just recently on a, another podcast. It was a Beatles podcast. by. There's a British guy that hosts it, and um, his name's Joe also. and
1: uh, So nerdy, all of he this. Only,
0: it's so nerdy, and and it's it's not. There's a deeper level, deeper level of nerdiness because the podcast is just about Beatles books, <laughs> books about the Beatles. And I'll never tell your I daughters book, that you did this.
1: Because... Yeah, no, they
0: would. They want nothing to do with it. Although yeah. they like the Beatles, but they don't want to hear about them. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So, but everybody's going to have an uncle or a cousin or a nephew or an aunt or a niece who is a Beatles maniac and will lead the rest, you know, to the television and say, we have to watch this and it will make everybody feel good, you know? And by the way, what's interesting about the overlap between this film and Thanksgiving is that, you know, the Beatles are a family, right? They're ostensibly like four brothers. And the second episode will feature a moment where they break down and George Harrison gets up out of the studio and says, I quit the Beatles and walks out. Mm. And so there's some drama right in the middle, you know, and it's basically like when somebody gets mad at your Thanksgiving dinner table and there's some drama and we have to kind of contain the drama. And the beauty of it is, is that obviously the Beatles come back together and they uh, have a triumphant concert on the roof of Apple records in London. And it's the most glorious, emotional, you know, kind of transcendent thing. And I'm giving. I, that's the part I saw, and it was so beautiful, wonderful, and um, will make people feel good. So, well,
1: there's you a lesson the Beatles in that movie for, for everyone, right?
0: Right, and if you want uh, something a little um, steamier and steamier, you've got House of Gucci.
1: I'm so excited for this. I have to say, I think this is, this sort of ties back into my interview with Jon Favreau, but I think that the internet has ruined my ability to watch movies. I, I have no attention span to sit and watch something for two hours. I, I just, I can't, especially at home, in a movie theater, great, but I have not been to a movie theater in, um, you know, a year and a half more, or whatever it was, March of 2020. And so watching a movie at home is like, forget it. I don't even try. I don't even pretend to pay attention to the whole thing. It's like, it's over for me. (laughs) I'm so excited to watch House of Gucci that I think Lee and I are considering renting at a movie theater. That is how excited we are. And obviously having friends who we know are the same level of, of cautious still that we are with a newborn. But I think that, like, nothing would sound more appealing to me than being in a movie theater with my friends right now and, and mm-hmm. feeling good and safe and watching something like this. I think something like this is meant to be watched on a big screen.
0: Well, it looks luscious to me. And, I you know, first of all, Lady Gaga, just from what I've seen, looks unbelievable Incredible. and fabulous in it. You've got Al Pacino. Forget about it. I mean, he's like—anything uh, he's in, I love anyway. Um, and uh, he's especially fit for this, right? This is, like, back to, like— it's just uh,
1: perfection.
0: Scorsese uh, period. That is a uh, – so that's on your agenda. Look, we're helping you here, uh, people. You know, you're going to get through Thanksgiving. It's going to be great.
1: Wait, I have one more, th- one more suggestion and then we can go back to tough things. This is maybe – it's definitely not something you should watch with your family. So if you need some alone time and you want to lock yourself in a room, do not – I warn yeah. you, do not watch yeah. this with your family. Yeah. Lee and I have been watching Sex Education. Have you watched it? No. Okay.
0: Tell me all about it.
1: It is maybe the most charming show I've ever seen in my life. It is so delightful. There are three seasons. The fourth one, I believe, is on the way. Uh, I don't understand how music cues work in the UK, but this show has probably the most expensive music budget I've ever heard, which really makes it uh, even more delightful. And it's about young kids in, or high school kids in England and they are making their way into adulthood. Uh, and it's about one boy in particular and one girl who are giving sex advice to other teens in their school. And fantastic! it's just so delightful. It's a great little mind escape. Last night we're in the third season and we were watching an episode that had, I would say, four incredibly emotional storylines that were happening. And Lee and I just looked at each other four separate times. Both of us were tearing up. And it's not like it's, it's, it's a really funny show. It's very dirty. But it really, you are so invested in these characters And it's such smart writing that we looked at each other. And and by the fourth time, we were just like, come on, like, I can't handle this. But it's really so lovely. So if you're looking for an escape that you should not watch with your family, I highly suggest
0: you watch this show. Love it. And I will say just I have been to a movie theater recently. Mm. And if you can make it to a movie theater safely and and do the theater thing, and I would suggest – the new Wes Anderson movie, oh. The French Dispatch. The French Dispatch. Oh, my God. It is really something. I mean, you, it depends if you're a Wes Anderson person. Can you? Are Wes you a Anderson. Wes Anderson person? I love Wes Anderson. Me too. Well, this is like a very potent Wes Anderson. It's like a you know, I don't know how the best way to put it, but it's it's concentrate. It's mm. like Wes Anderson concentrate. Mm. It's so, there's so many gorgeous tableaus that, you know, you know, that are just been beautifully styled. There's a weird kind of theatrical quality to it. All, you know, layers of theater going on in it. Incredible cast. And, but what's really wonderful about it for people like you and m- myself is that it's about a magazine and it is a, romantic kind of tribute and homage to uh, the New Yorker and the Paris Review and the sort of old-school journalists. And the whole thing is, you know, I, I won't be giving away anything by saying it's basically about a, uh, a magazine in Paris that's run by Americans and it, the, the movie's broken into three parts, which are three possibly, I think there's four, actually, four magazine stories, and you've watched the journalist, uh, you know, in each one. Frances McDormand has one, and she's a a journalist in the the French Dispatch, and of course, Bill Murray's the editor. And it's sort of like, um, definitely made me feel good about being in our business, being a magazine tradesperson. And uh, it's really beautiful. It looks gorgeous. It's fun to watch. And uh, so I can recommend it.
1: Sold. Sold. I'm completely sold.
0: We were just talking about the the romance and the glory of magazine making and being a journalist, which this movie uh, will get you excited about. But the reality can sometimes be very different. Now, here you have this beautiful young baby that you uh, are, um, you know, just getting started. um, And you have these uh, dogs that are... uh, in your life, so you kind of have two other kids in, in, a, way. in a way. And you're also writing a story right now. Um, and so, you know, you're technically on maternity leave, but you're still working and then you're working on something big and impressive that people are going to be excited about when it comes out. So uh, to give us the, um, the reality of, of your life.
1: I hate to talk about this because I am like the 700 trillionth mother to work. Right. I am hardly the person who the first person who's ever done what I'm doing right now. Um, And I have only been doing it for four and a half months. Uh, So I know nothing. That's that's all I'm going to say. But I will just tell you, writing magazine stories on the best of days in the easiest of circumstances is like true torture. Right. I think reporting a magazine story is as our late editor John Homans would say, the sport of kings, and I completely couldn't agree with any sentiment more. And writing a story is like true hell. That's the only it's way I could escape. describe it. So being in that experience is is not easy. And then doing that when I have at most an hour and a half interval between when I'm feeding her basically and, and by the time she goes down, I have an hour of nap time last week after like several days of me trying to write in in one hour stretches at nap time or after bedtime i was like you know what i have to I have to work through the day i can't i can't just do it at nap time i have to miss windows with my daughter and i felt sick to my stomach i felt sick to my stomach not because she is in the absolute best care she has no idea she's too young to know, to miss me she loves our nanny more than anything in the entire world. And I am so beyond fortunate to have someone who can watch her. Lee is working from home and he's worked for 12 hours a day, but he can still step in when I need a, a second set of hands. So I'm in the most fortunate situation that I could possibly be in. But I felt sick to my stomach and not because I was worried about her, not because I don't love what I do and I do love what I do, but because, I enjoy spending time with her more than I enjoy doing anything else right now. And intellectually and professionally, I have talked and thought a lot about paid leave. Uh, We had a whole huge episode right before I had the baby and it's something I talk about and wrote about and knew about and heard people talking about for my entire life. I now think about it in a completely different way. It's not the practical concerns that uh are surprising to me because the practical concerns are the things I think you can understand even if you don't have them. It's the emotional weight of not having all of that time with your child.
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: It's tough and and um my leave is is exceptionally generous and it is coming to an end soon and I'm really excited to go back to work. I love what I do. Um, And last week when I had to have those couple of days where I really wasn't able to be a a fully present mom in the way that I've been lucky enough to be for the last four months, uh, I had a talk with JR. And it was, I fed her in the morning and I was ready to hand her off so I could get to writing. And I said, your mom's having a hard time. You're going to be okay, but I'm I'm not going to be okay today. And I don't want to not spend the day with you but I want you to know that it's okay to like other things besides hanging out with your mom. And it's okay when you're a mom someday to like other things besides hanging out with your kid. And it's important to show you that moms can do both things they maybe can't do them both at the same time. And they maybe can't do everything well, but it's a good thing to go to work. It's a good thing to have something you care about. It's a good thing to prioritize a lot of different things in your life. And obviously she understands nothing about what I'm saying. I was giving myself a pep talk. Um, Mm. But it just made me refocus on thinking about all the conversations we need to have around pay leave and not just the policy side on it. There's a lot of emotional stuff that
0: goes along with
1: it that I think- Yeah, the
0: transitions are, are so immense. I mean, and the one that you're talking about now, about transitioning from being able to have this wonderful time- right? To really commit to this bond with this beautiful being that you've brought in. uh, To kind of in a way trying to return to something that is uh, you know, also something you love, but you're not the same person coming back to it, right? And um, that is I know just from my own experience observing my wife, you know, it was a transformational experience for her to try to negotiate being a mother and being a writer, she's a writer, novelist, and a teacher. Um, and uh, I would say one thing is it made her much more political. It made her more uh, like a, a different kind of feminist, too. And um, in fact, it became basically the subject of all of her books, You know, being a mother, and, and the sort of inequities of it, and the misunderstanding of it, right? Um, how much more people think of motherhood as like um, soft and fuzzy and it's got like a, you know, there's a kind of, it's wrapped and shrouded in a kind of like, you know, a certain kind of Hollywood vision of uh, that it's innocuous or, uh, somehow or it's soft and, and it is those things. It's tender and soft, but it's also existential, right? And it's, it goes to the core of what it means to be a human being. And uh, that's a lot, you know, and, it's, and a lot of that is borne by the mother, right?
1: I will, I will jump in and say that being a mom is nothing like anyone said it was going to be to me. Um, you get so much advice uh, asked for and not asked for when you become a parent. And mm-hmm. I would say I either got two camps. I had one camp of people saying you're going to be obsessed with your child. The second you see them, you're going to love your child more. You, you, you've you never known love like this, and the second that they arrive in this world, you will jump in front of a bus for them, and your heart's going to be cracked open, and you're never going to want to think about anything else, and your whole world becomes about that baby, or the other camp is your life is over. You, are, you will never sleep again. You will be in absolute misery. You will have no life. You're going to hate your husband. Your You know, you're going to be spit up on all day. And like everyone used to say, like, get your sleep now because you'll never sleep again. And so you have these two camps of of people either building you up to have this experience that makes you feel like you'll never have the same worldview again or uh, your world is over. So like sayonara, say goodbye. And I found that neither of those are true for me. Uh, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle in some ways. Sure. I love my child in a way that I didn't know I could love something, but I am able to think about other things and find joy in other things other than my child. And uh, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to find that intense love too. It doesn't necessarily have to happen immediately and you're not a monster if you don't see your child and feel like you would immediately jump off of a building to save her life. and I also feel like I have a lifestyle and I, I love Lee still and and I love spending time with him and I still run every day and I make time for that and our baby is not sleeping perfectly but I'm sleeping and, and not, not everything that everyone tells you is exactly right is the moral of the story which I guess is the, the most obvious parenting thing that I've learned uh, in, in foreign homeless. Yes, I am exceptionally grateful this year. I'm, as always, exceptionally grateful to you to have uh, someone who I can come to and have real adult conversations that leave me thinking for the rest of the day. And I oftentimes, after we podcast, I will text you and say, hey, I can't wait to talk about that more. We should do more of that because uh, after we, we hang up here, I continue to think about our conversations and... I feel very grateful to have a place to work through all this with
0: you. Yeah, well, I'm thankful too, and I'm also thankful that uh, this podcast is something of a record uh, of this time in your life, and uh, your your child will be able to grow up and listen in on some of the uh, sort of the diary entries of uh, of the experience um, that you've been going through, and there's a lot to learn from that.
1: God, I hope uh, hope and to appreciate. I hope that. She won't be as mortified as I think she will be by all of this. The other tricky thing, and I'm sure you're navigating this all the time, is figuring out what to share of her and her life. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you think about this with teenage daughters all the time. But that is that is top of mind for us all the time.
0: Of course. Well, uh, you know, we as journalists and people in the media, we live a life that's sort of, uh, you know, half public at least. And, um, and we are also in a world in which social media sort of like values confession, right, and wants to know it all, right? But we have to draw the line and, and decide how we're going to demarcate all of that. But one thing I will share uh, is that I, too, am incredibly grateful uh, for you. And uh, I'm so happy when you come back to the podcast. You know, it's sort of lonely without you. But to be perfectly honest, you know, I've been, uh, yeah, I have had some fun guests last week. We had Gabe Sherman on. We've had Nick Bilton on the show, and I love when those guys come on and we, uh, you know, rap about uh, whatever story they're doing. But um, it will be uh, even though it will be difficult. Uh, for you to come back into the fold with us. Uh, I'm looking forward to having you um, whenever that time should arrive. And um, I think in the new year, we're going to have a lot more Emily Jane Fox on the podcast. And we want to continue to know about this. And uh, two things that I took away so far from this conversation was I want to, uh, you know, we have a little whiteboard here for ideas for the podcast. Um, One we want to put on the whiteboard is that we definitely want to bring somebody in to talk about the economy and have Emily Jane Fox sort of revisit her um, her financial journalism past. I have one too, by the way. I worked at smartmoney.com covering oh, the mutual on. fund business. Yeah. It seems like we both uh, need to
1: do like a little bit of a trip yeah. to our former
0: lives. Let's try to uh, you know bring some of those smarts to bear. And, uh, and of course, continuing the paid leave conversation. Um, because obviously there's a lot more to be educated about there and for people to understand and an emotional component like you mentioned. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, you're probably trying to escape your family while listening to this, you're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of something here, but I'll get back to you. Well, I hope that we've uh, been able to um, give you a little your reprieve and uh, some ideas and things you can talk about at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Or just a little bit of, uh, you know, continuing, maybe you're a a subscriber to the podcast and you're coming back week to week. Well, hello again, and we'll see you next week as we get back into uh, the news. And uh, I'm sure we'll have something exciting.
1: I'm sure we will. I'm so happy to be back. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Happy, safe travels. And stay safe, stay sane. If you're in that 49th hour or beyond, God bless.
0: And
1: we'll see you right here
0: next week. Happy Thanksgiving. That's our show this week. I'd like to thank Emily Jane Fox, my co-host, and my producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe. Come back next week. We're going to have more interviews, more conversation right on the edge of the news. That's Inside the Hive. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast, and we'll see you next week.